Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. Play along and test your brain. The Discam brain of 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. I'm happy to say, after struggling for like 15, 20 minutes to get through to the Naked Scientist, there must have been something wrong with the lines. I don't understand the technical stuff and I never like to get involved in it. I'm just happy that Chris is with us. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. I'm delighted too. Lovely, lovely, lovely. Physics of popcorn. I wouldn't have thought the words physics and popcorn go together, but I'm learning (laughs) that there's physics in everything. What's that about? Well, of course, popcorn is known all over the world. Uh, It's an an obligatory cinema snack, but how does it work? What's going on? There's some really important physics locked up in in those kernels of corn that you dump in the tin and then you cook to about 180 degrees and off they go, making that beautiful sound and producing a nice tasty snack. And I have to ask you at this stage, Reedy, is it going to be salt or is it going to be sugar or honey for you? Neither, <laughs> just plain. <laughs> You're not another popcorn fan? <laughs> no, not quite. But when I do have popcorn, I like sour cream and chives or nothing. <laughs> so salt oh, well, maybe, yeah. Okay. But what this group of researchers, it's a, it's a pair from France, actually, Emmanuel Viro and uh, Alexandra Ponomarenko, they've published a paper in the Royal Society Journal Interface, and they have subjected popcorn to a proper physics scrutiny. And the way they do this is the first thing they did was to say, well, let's look at and investigate the popping temperature. So they put pieces of corn on a hot plate and increment the temperature up, watching what happens until it goes off and goes pop and they find that there's a very rigid or tight temperature regime at which it pops, and uh, it has to be more than 170 degrees, and by about 180 degrees C, then uh, more than 90% of the popcorn has popped at this temperature. They work out on the basis of this temperature what the pressure is inside the popcorn, and it's about 10 atmospheres at the time it pops. That's quite high pressure for a little seed. Hmm. And then they work out what's going on. When you heat the popcorn up, there's about 20 milligrams of water leaves the popcorn when it goes pop. So that water's under intensely high pressure inside the popcorn. And the outer shell or hull of the popcorn, the pericarp, is very strong. And this is why it can withstand the water being boiled to a very high temperature. So the popcorn behaves like a miniature pressure cooker. And it forces the water into the starch inside the popcorn, making it turn into a sort of runny... Um, almost molten state, so that this is why it then, when the pressure is released and the hull of the popcorn breaks, it can splurge out in that uh, inflating way. Mm-hmm. They then look at why the popcorn actually goes pop and flips around, and they do this by taking pictures at 3,000 frames a second of bits of popcorn 
popping and they also record the soundtrack and line up the sound with when the pop and the pictures change so you can actually associate what's happening physically to the popcorn with when it's making sounds and the uh, first thing the popcorn does is it puts down a sort of leg of starch from the outer surface not starch cellulose from the outer surface of the popcorn and this flips it up and over and it does a 490 degree spin for anyone mm -hmm. who's in the in, in, interested but then at the same time the a thing pops open and out comes the starch, but that's not actually when the pop happens. The pop happens a little bit later, so you think that's a bit odd. Why hmm. is that? And actually what's happening is that when it pops open, the water that was locked up inside under very high pressure issues and comes splurging out, and it leaves behind inside the popcorn a, an area of lower pressure Mm. And it's just like when you pop the cork out of a champagne bottle, there's actually lower pressure now inside the bottle because of momentum carrying the gas out of the bottle when the pop goes off. And the lower pressure inside the bottle then sees an inrush of air back in, which then resonates around inside the bottle, making the champagne bottle ring and pop. Same thing happens with the popcorn. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. I wouldn't well, necessarily advise mixing good quality champagne with popcorn. <laughs> <though>. <laughs> It'd really put you off the popcorn. <laughs> I like that a lot. Our lines are open for you. 021-446-0567 or 11-883-0702. We're taking your SMSs as well on 31702 and 31567. Damon in Durbanville. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Can you hear me? Is the line clear yes. Uh, my question, uh, a gang of us were sitting around Bride and I talking about propulsion, rocket propulsion in space. And I was of the opinion that one needed propulsion. In other words, you shoot a rocket, turn a rocket to the moon or Venus, and once it's in space, you still need to propel it. A lot of other guys are saying, no, once, once it's in space, you don't need propulsion. But I, I, it might be a simple question, but I can't get my head around it. Chris? Hi, Brendan. Well, as Isaac Newton taught us a few hundred years ago, uh, that one of his laws is that, f that, that any body, in other words, an object, remains at rest unless there's a net force acting on it or it remains at constant velocity, and that velocity movement may be zero, in other words, at rest, or it may be moving. So if you have a rocket in space and it is either at rest or it's moving, it's going to keep moving in that direction with that velocity unless a force acts on it. So your rocket would carry on going, assuming it's not slowing down because it's not hitting anything, it's going to carry on going in that one direction forever. The only way you're going to make it change direction is if you apply a force to the rocket, which is why rockets have to take fuel with them, and then apply a push. So when, when you let the rocket go, when, in other words, it, it fires its rockets, what it actually is doing is ejecting a lot of gas in one direction, and this is because the gas is pushing on the rocket to come out of the rocket, the rocket feels a push in the opposite direction, that's Newton's third law, and the rocket changes direction. So you do absolutely need propulsion to change direction in space, because you need a force. Okay, so are you going to have another bride, Eamon, where you tell everybody what the answer is? <laughs> Thank, you <very> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Peter in Woodmead, hi. Hi, good morning, Reddy and the Naked Scientist. Peter from Woodmead. I have a question. Why is it that when you're in an emotional breakdown, you feel a heavy pain or heavy weight sitting on your chest and a rush in your stomach? Physical pain uh, related to uh, your emotional pain or stress. Chris? Hi, Peter. Well, when you have emotional distress, this is obviously created by your brain and your nervous system, and you can therefore 
see various manifestations or outlets for that emotional distress. Some people get upset stomach, some people feel a sinking feeling in their stomach because the, it, the distress causes a lot of adrenaline to be released and this causes all of your internal viscera, your stomach and your intestines, to switch off and to sink, which is the sinking feeling. It also puts your heart rate right up and it can actually trigger abnormal heart rhythms in some people. It's called an arrhythmia. And if you're getting very bad pains in your chest when you feel very overwrought or upset about something, it may be worth getting it checked out by the doctor just in case because one sign that uh, blood vessels supplying the heart are getting a bit narrowed by the ageing process or the build-up of fatty deposits, which actually occurs to pretty much everybody, but some people it occurs worse than others, it, this could be angina. And therefore it's worth uh, just getting that checked if that's happening to you. But it, it may well be that you're... Um, just experiencing the effects of stress and adrenaline which is making your heart go very fast and it's actually making your muscles contract uh, in, as well around the body. We tend to tense all our muscles up when we get stressed about things as well and this can disclose pain in the chest where the joints are between your ribs and the cartilages. Thank you so much, Peter. I think a lot of people will identify with that. Now, Chris, we know that um, uh, in, in treatment with insulin has totally uh, revolutionized the control of the disease diabetes. But now I understand there are further developments in the form of a long-acting insulin. Yes, well, one thing that people who have diabetes have a problem with is controlling their blood sugar. And this is because the pancreas doesn't make enough of the hormone insulin. It either doesn't make any or it makes an insufficient amount. And this means that the person's blood sugar can climb too high. Uh, this can be well managed by injecting insulin, but this is extremely inconvenient, it's uncomfortable, and it also doesn't maintain optimal control of a person's blood sugar, which we know is what's needed in order to minimise the side effects over a lifetime. So a group of researchers at MIT, this is Matthew Weber and his colleagues, have come up with an automatic form of insulin. This activates itself mm -hmm. in response to the right amount of blood sugar and delivers just the right amount of insulin to keep the blood sugar under control and you only need to inject it once. Now this has been done in mice. The way they've done this is to take the insulin hormone, it's a small protein, and they've coupled it to some other chemicals that enable it to stick onto the proteins that naturally go around in the bloodstream. And this sequesters it so it can't do anything in that state. And on the other end of the molecule is this phenylboronic acid. And this acts as a, a glucose sensor. And when the level of glucose builds up in the blood to more than a certain threshold level, which is, in their case, they've made a molecule that detects the right level of blood glucose, this binds onto the glucose sensor, distorts the molecule a little bit and prizes the insulin off of these proteins, releasing it into the bloodstream so that it can do its work and when they did tests on mice, they found that the, the mice they used could have normal blood sugar for hours at a time without having to inject any more insulin. These were mice with the rodent equivalent of diabetes. And they could also inject sugar into these mice to simulate or mimic a meal. And they could do this many times over up to a 12-hour period, and their blood sugar always stayed correct. So this is really encouraging, and it's the first sort of step towards mm -hmm. a really well, uh, an appropriately acting, automatically activating insulin that would be consistent with a person who has diabetic, diabetes being able to, to just inject it once a day. Speaking of diabetes, here's Peter in Auckland Park. Peter, what's your question? <laughs> oh, it is quite surprising that uh, he, uh, the doctor there, just clarified everything. But here's the thing. Uh, I seem to eat like a shark. I have like, I snack all the time. I eat like four meals per day but there's no sign of 
gain weight or anything. I don't know if there's something wrong with my immune system or maybe there's something that I need to take for... Okay, you've got a huge appetite. You eat a lot, but you're not gaining weight. Very much. Okay, Chris? Hi, Peter. Well, the rules of physics are not being rewritten in anyone's abdomen that we know of. (laughs) And the rules of physics are energy in equals energy out. So if you are eating a lot of calories, food and you are not gaining weight, then the energy must be going somewhere. Now, either it's not being absorbed, and that means it's going down the toilet, or it is being absorbed, and it's going into your muscles, and you're burning it off. Now, some people are very, very busy. Some people are very, very active. They do a physical job, and they're... I mean, if you look at the people who collect dustbins and things, they're running up and down all the time, lifting heavy weights. People do manual tasks. This all uses huge amounts of energy. So, therefore, you will eat more than the next person. There are a few rarer situations where a person has a metabolic rate which is higher than it should be and their cells are therefore burning more energy and producing usually more heat but you would know about that probably if you had that and the other possibility is that uh, you have somebody else living inside you alongside you who's helping themselves to what you're eating and as a result you're not seeing it what do i refer to while i'm referring to intestinal parasites One common reason why people don't gain weight, or at least don't gain the weight they should, or maintain the weight they should, is because they have picked up a friendly passenger, uh, Mm. usually in the form of a tapeworm, who can be metres long and can be quite hungry. And these worms can consume quite a lot of the calories that you consume, and as a result they grow Uh. and you don't. So if this is something (laughs) that might be a possibility, or any of those things might be a possibility, it might be worth checking them out, but if you are just physically very, very active, then I think there are probably be people all over the country listening to this radio program going god i wish i had that problem <laughs> well yes i was about to say i wish i had peter's problem until he started talking about worms and all of that and uh, okay <laughs> let's go to amy in belleville hi um good morning Judy and chris um i would like to know what properties does um sunblock have that they that it can protect us from the harmful sun rays okay good morning amy The harmful part of sunshine, which damages skin and ages skin, is ultraviolet radiation. This is very short wavelength radiation beyond the blue and purple end of the visible light spectrum. So it's part of the light and radiation the sun puts out, and only a little bit of it reaches us here at the surface of the Earth because a lot is absorbed by the particles in the atmosphere, A lot more is absorbed by a special layer called the ozone layer, which is many miles above the Earth's surface. It's a thin band of oxygen molecules fused together to make O3 molecules, ozone, and they soak up a lot of the ultraviolet. But a little bit makes its way down to the Earth's surface and can land on us. If the skin is not endowed with melanization, in other words, you're not dark-skinned, which is a natural sunscreen, a natural protection, melanin being a molecule that can absorb and de-energize the ultraviolet rays, it can get into the skin, penetrate into the basal layer of the skin, and it damages the DNA of your skin cells, making them um, more likely to become cancerous, but also it has an aging effect on skin. It breaks down the elastic and the collagen fibers in skin, causing skin thinning and wrinkling. Sunscreen consists of tiny particles. It's usually got things like zinc or titanium nanoparticles in it, which when smeared onto the skin, the particles form a thin, imperceptible film. Because they're so tiny, visible light goes through, so you can't see them, or they look just a bit white. Uh, The ultraviolet rays, though, do see those tiny particles, and they interrupt and scatter back the ultraviolet rays 
or they absorb the ultraviolet rays because they get in the way of them and they turn the ultraviolet energy into nothing more than harmless heat or infrared mm -hmm. energy. And as a result, although your skin temperature goes up a bit, much less of the ultraviolet radiation gets through and therefore your skin sees a lot less ultraviolet radiation so the degree of damage is reduced. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks indeed. And then we have um, Tembi. Tembi in Alex. Hi. Hi, Rudy, and good morning to your guest. Um, I just want to find out what is it about wheat that causes so much gas in the human digestive system? Wheat and gas, okay. Yes. Hi, Tembi. Well, there's a number of aspects to this. Wheat is full of carbohydrates. It's the seeds of a plant, and plants store their energy as starch. And there are also celluloses, which are, which are polymers of glucose, which are largely indigestible in there. So there's some fiber, and there's also some soluble material in the form of starch that you can break down. Both of these are great food for bacteria. And anything that you eat, you share with the microbes that live on you and largely in you. There's a couple of kilos of bacteria just inhabiting your intestine. There's a, probably a, mm. about 100 trillion of them. They outnumber you 100 to 1 in your body. Wow. There's 100 times more of them than there are cells of us. And those microbes have a very rich diet and they have an incredibly diverse m micro and sorry uh, gen um, genome, which means they can break down pretty much anything they want to and when they break it down they produce gaseous products and mm -hmm. some people have a certain cocktail or combination of microorganisms that break down certain things to produce certain types of gas more than others in fact your bowel bacterial fingerprint is more unique to you than the one on your finger mm. um, there's a there's a unique spectrum of bugs that live on every single person and that's why some people can eat certain things others will eat the same thing and they will find that oh it makes their stomach a bit upset or gives them as you say gas hmm. <laughs> shall we go to um, food for thought that yeah one, i know <laughs> ronald in, <laughs> in ready good morning Good morning. You and the scientists as well. I just had a quick question. Um, if we were to uh, compress air to the same pressure as uh, water, could we then technically swim in air? Technically? Hi, Ronald. Well, what happens if you keep compressing air? When it uh, first gets compressed, any, anything that you compress is going to get hot. And this is adiabatic heating. It's why when a meteor comes in from outer space going very fast, it gets hot and burns up. And this is because as it's hitting the air, it's compressing the air ahead of it. And this makes the air become very hot, which then heats up the surface layer of the meteorite as it goes past the meteor and causes it to produce light. Mm -hmm. It's also the same science that's going on in the engine of your car. When the piston comes up and compresses the gas in the cylinder, it will heat up the gas. And in a diesel engine, this is actually what ignites the fuel. It's the very hot gas. So if you keep on compressing gas, initially it gets very, very hot. If you take the heat away, though then the gas can condense into a liquid. And one of the things that we do on our science shows that we, we do in South Africa, and in fact it's good news to everyone, I can tell you, mm. we'll, we're going to be coming to the RAND show and we're going to yes. be there in uh, April.
Mm. Over the Easter weekend, so come see the Naked Scientist. And I think we're coming 702 as well. We're going to do one of our shows with you uh, at 702. But one of the things we do is to, is to show you liquid nitrogen. And the air is made up 80% liquid nitrogen. If you compress air very hard, take the heat away, it condenses into, into a clear liquid, but one which is minus 200, give or take, degrees centigrade. So you, 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 I suppose you could walk on that if you were less dense than liquid nitrogen, but you'd be pretty cold. Okay. And then, Chris, what's this about the smell test for Parkinson's disease? Oh, well, researchers in Israel and also at Cambridge University are trying to set up a smell test for Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a neurological condition. It's very common. Uh, there are probably between 7 and 8 million people around the world who have got and are suffering with Parkinson's disease. And they will complain usually of symptoms of muscle stiffness, slowness in trying to get movements going, and also they may have a tremor in usually the, f the fingers. Often it's worse on one side than the other. And one of the problems with Parkinson's is that when a person dies and you do a post-mortem on them, you find that 90% of the time, yes, they really did have Parkinson's disease, but 10% of the time they actually had something else that looked like Parkinson's but wasn't Parkinson's. And so scientists would quite like to have, an, and doctors have a better way of diagnosing the disease because the prognosis of these different conditions, the management, and therefore the best drugs to treat the alternative conditions with are going to differ. And unless you've got the diagnosis right, you can't get the treatment and the management and the advice to the patient right. So what these neurologists and scientists in Israel and Cambridge are doing is they've got a big group, hundreds of patients with Parkinson's and, and also healthy people. They are asking these people to provide samples of their breath and they are using sensitive chemical analyzers to look at the fingerprints of chemicals that people are breathing out and they're looking for individual combinations of chemicals that seem to predict a person who's going to get or already has got Parkinson's and it's not because the Parkinson's makes you breathe out certain chemicals it's that the Parkinson's changes the environment in the body in some way mm -hmm. and this uh, is then reflected in a, a, a change to the natural chemicals that you just breathe out and if you test enough of them enough times you can begin to spot a pattern which only crops up in people who have or do not have Parkinson's disease. And so in the next few years they hope that they'll therefore have this as a non-invasive, very simple to do test, which doesn't involve nasty needles or taking mm. samples of brain tissue or oh. fluid from around the brain, which is at the moment the only way really to do this. And uh, we can give people a more accurate diagnosis. Here's an SMS. I would like to know, how can certain planets stay still while others are moving? That's from Peggy in Fowies. Well, um, I'm not aware of any planets that are not moving. The reason for this is that when planets first form, if we look at our solar system, the early or young star at the centre of our solar system, the proto-star, initially forms from a big cloud of gas and dust that collapses in on itself and under gravity slowly compresses and then ignites under fusion around that star, initially in a big envelope all around it, but slowly coalescing into a disk around the waste or girth of the star is what we call a protoplanetary disk of material and this is more gas and dust and it is all turning and spinning because there is something called conservation of angular momentum when things have already got movement and spin and they're turning there's no way for them to not turn anymore they can't lose that that momentum it can't just evaporate so therefore anything that they contribute to also inherits their angular momentum and out of that disk of material slowly coalesce or, or condense uh, and aggregate 
small baby planets called planetesimals, and then they grow into bigger planets, becoming, in some cases, gas giants like Jupiter or small rocky worlds like Mercury, Mars, the Earth and Venus. All of those bodies will inherit the momentum of the things that were turning and spinning in that disk. And as a result, most of the matter that we see around us is all turning and moving and spinning around. And that's why the planets are also turning. But sometimes they can smash into each other and clobber each other. And if one thing's going one way and one's going the other way, the movements can sort of cancel out. And so you can change the speed or trajectory of these things. So... Uh, other situations can occur where, for instance, a body, it was turning, say the moon um, was turning much faster around the Earth than it, than it is now, and it's slowly become what we call tidally locked. So in other words, it all, it's slowed down to the point where it takes exactly one revolution of the moon uh, uh, to do one com the same time to do one complete orbit of the Earth, and so the moon always shows us the same face. And so those effects can then come along later, secondary to what we call tidal locking and things like that. But mostly everything you see around you is going to have some degree of motion. Chris, have a lovely weekend and thank you so much for giving us your time. We chat again next week. I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks, bye -bye. really. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. And, of course, we are going to have this conversation available as a podcast. You just go onto our website and download, listen, and enjoy. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.